Welcome to The Lisa Show, where we take a good look at life. Today, we're focusing on what I believe is at the heart of navigating the system, being a self-advocate, finding the information that isn't handed to you but which you really need, learning how to speak up, and making hard decisions in the face of self-doubt. And along with that, standing up to that feeling of powerlessness when it feels like there are no resources, help, or options available. Sometimes, by the way, because that's exactly what you're told. I had this experience many times. I'm sitting down with my hospice team, for example. They ask me what help I need. I say, can someone help me lift my husband out of bed in the morning? And they say, well, no, we don't do that. Or Christopher needs physical therapy, like really needs it. He will die sooner or in more pain without it. And the insurance says, well, no, we won't cover that. He's already dying. Or I'm talking to a CNA and asking, can someone sit with him for an hour so I can nap? And the answer is, well, no, we can or we won't or we don't do that. It starts to sound like a broken record, and it becomes more and more clear that the system, and I'm talking about the structure of services, information, help, insurance, and medical intervention, even at their most well-meaning, they are not the safety net. I am. You are. Cue the mounting feelings of despair and burnout. It is so hard. What do we do in that moment? In this episode, you're going to hear some personal stories from guests and from myself about advocacy. And to be perfectly honest, I've written pages and pages for this episode about all the different ways systems failed me as a caregiver. If you'd like to rant with me just to get it out, maybe we'll have a little sesh in the Facebook group. Okay, there's so much. We could do a whole episode on insurance. Keeping my rage to a minimum, like about the way society would immediately crumble if not for the astronomical amount of grueling unpaid labor by family caregivers, and especially women. So why is it so gosh darn hard to get some help? (laughs) There it is. I'm done. Moving on. I promise. I just had to say it. We're going to look at what we can do in the meantime. In a perfect world, we wouldn't have to advocate for ourselves or the needs of the people we love. This is not that world. But you can still be empowered. Let's talk about that. I want to introduce you to Lauren Lowry, a caregiver who has an extraordinary amount of experience with different systems. And I'll let her tell you why. So I'm Lauren Lowry. I am a mom of two. I have a son, Leo, who is seven, and a daughter, Kimber, who is six. And my son, Leo, he has a rare genetic disorder. It affects pretty much everything, (laughs) his entire body and all of his, you know, day-to-day functions. And then my daughter, we actually adopted out of foster care. So that is a whole other caregiving experience on its own. And as you probably guessed, with one child adopted out of foster care and another child needing significant medical intervention, Lauren knows a lot about systems. But in the beginning, like most of us, she was starting from scratch. So whenever Leo was born, we didn't know anything was wrong, right? We didn't know that he had a genetic disorder. We didn't know that our lives were going to turn out the way that they are turned out, you know? Um, So it was kind of a whirlwind. And in that whirlwind, Lauren started to notice things. You know, just very small signs that 
something just wasn't quite right at the birth, you know. Um, so he had trouble regulating his temperature. He had trouble feeding, you know, the first week or so. And the doctors noticed these things too, but interpreted them differently. And so it's just a lot of things that they chalked up to being, oh, you're a worried first-time mom. You are just nervous, you know, this is normal, this is completely normal. And we just kept thinking, this doesn't feel right. Something feels off. Just little things here and there, nothing big. But as it turns out, those instincts were right. Lauren insisted that they look for answers again and again and again, until full genome sequencing revealed what the Lowrys had intuitively known, that something wasn't right, and the gut feelings were more than first-time parent paranoia. And that's when we got the diagnosis. He was almost a year old of a Cardi Goodyear syndrome, which is, at the time, there was only 400 cases reported worldwide. It is now much more common. Um, it is still very rare. It is a leukodystrophy. Sure. So it affects the white matter of the brain. But it is still something that no doctor has ever heard of <laughs> around here, especially we live in rural Oklahoma. So it is not something that they are familiar with or that they have ever even dealt with or know how to treat. In this new role, not just as a parent, but now as the primary caregiver, managing a condition that most doctors hadn't heard of or come across, Lauren realized that she was just at the very beginning of this journey as a self-advocate. We really learned to advocate for him and for our family at a very, very early stage in our parenthood, right? Like the first few days, we learned that you have to go with your gut. You have to really trust your instincts and trust that voice that is saying, hey, something's not right here. You need to figure this out. You need to really seek answers. So that's what we did. And we got answer by answer until eventually they did an entire you know, genome sequencing for his genetics to figure out what was going on because they could not figure it out. Without Lauren asking the questions, the answers might not ever come. We're going to come back to this story because Lauren has had some time to develop some great strategies for approaching this role. In the meantime, I want you to hear from Jillian Benfield, a former journalist, news anchor, freelance writer, and a caregiver for her son, Anderson, who has Down syndrome. Like the Lowrys, the Benfields experienced a whirlwind in finding the right care for their child. The first few years were really hard. Lots of medical stuff. I mean, it was nothing for us to be at some sort of medical appointment every day of the week. Wow. And that's kind of how the first couple of years went. He ended up having open heart surgery at five months old. And then it was mostly therapies. And then he had a lot of upper respiratory, which was, um, that's those types of issues are more common in little ones with Down syndrome. Today, Anderson is eight years old. And some of that medical stuff has thankfully, you know, is is not as present anymore. And um, yeah, so life with Anderson is um, a lot like it is with our other two children. Um, and a lot of it is not, you know, he's, um, it definitely adds 
extra layers when you have a child with a disability. There's more layers of complexity. Um, There are also new avenues of joy. I love this point. With Anderson's medical needs more or less settling into the background, or at least a rhythm, with the right specialists on hand to help, like Jillian said, life with Anderson is a lot like life with their other kids, with a few layers of complexity and avenues of joy. So beautifully said. But Jillian goes on to explain that outside of their home, the world often isn't inclusive. And for Anderson to have similar opportunities and experiences and participation in society as his peers, they've had to advocate. Advocacy is a big part of our lives. We're huge proponents of school inclusion, um, meaning that we believe that All kids should be educated together in the general education classroom, including ours. And that has been a journey. And it is year to year because it depends on your teacher and, and how they feel about that. And the need for this type of advocacy runs so deep, it showed up for the Benfields even before Anderson was born. In the moment Down syndrome entered the conversation, the system presented the Benfields with an idea of what their options were and how to feel about it. Jillian took me back in time to this moment years ago. We ended up getting blood work done, and uh, it turned out that our child had a 99.9% chance of having Down syndrome. And when the doctor called us back into his office to explain that to us, um, he said to us, uh, he said, don't worry, Um, you don't have to be heroes. If you decide not to go through with the termination, you can have the baby here and we can keep him comfortable but we don't have to do anything drastic to save his life. So in other words, the doctor led us to believe that our child would not have a life worth living. There is so much to unpack there, and I don't know how to. Having a doctor say any one of those things, but there's something so poignant in this example. I feel these echoes of the messages I got from doctors, therapists, insurance. The system has a way of saying in a thousand different ways, this life doesn't matter or it has less value. There's no point in fighting for more. This is what you get. And so I really grieved like a death had taken place. And it would take me a long time to realize that Unfortunately, I had more in common with the doctor than I wanted to admit that the reason he said the things that he said was because he thought um, disability meant living a less than life. And I would have to spend weeks, months, and even years of unpacking that for myself and retraining my brain about disability. Jillian just casually said something so profound that I don't want to gloss over it about retraining her brain. I'm so grateful for her vulnerability in sharing the very real result of this messaging. Who hasn't had the experience of sitting in a doctor's office or opening a letter from the insurance company or having the door slammed in whatever way it happens? And it all feels so official, permanent, authoritative. The letterhead, the form emails, the impersonal corporateness of everything. There's something so dangerous about that. Because when the system tells you there's no hope, no help, no point, how do you not absorb that despair? 
Jillian is about to share her outlook on the other side, the wisdom and 2020 hindsight, which she has now about this experience with their doctor. He just boxed my son in before he was even born, right? He boxed him in with limited hope, limited possibilities. And basically, he did that because we have a society that devalues people with disabilities. We have a society that devalues um, any kind of unexpected struggle and values instead um, this myth of independence, right? And so I guess if I were to talk to him now, I would say that, you know, Anderson's life is a different life. It is different. Um, Your life is different, right? My life is different after experiencing the unexpected. And it doesn't mean that we would not necessarily change some of our circumstances, but a different life is not a less than life. And um, that's one of the main things that Anderson has taught me. Um, and he's a guide constantly with that, that, you know, he's happy. <laughs> yeah. um, and he's just a lovely kid. And um, there's nothing there's nothing sad about his life. Are there sometimes struggles that come that can that can create sadness? Sure. But Who he is, is not sad or less than. Jillian decided not to accept the mentality that was being handed to her and found a sweeter truth about the joy and value and possibility in her family's life. She has some absolute gems about how she did this, and I'm going to share them in a moment, but I want to introduce you to one more person and give a little heads up to listeners that may want to be aware, in the next three minutes, we do have a brief mention of suicidal ideation. So now let me introduce Amy Bouchatz. Amy is a freelance writer and the director of development for Remedy Alpine, a nonprofit co-founded by her husband, Luke, and focused on veteran outdoor therapy. She is also a caregiver with a unique journey of learning to self-advocate. I want you to hear her story. So in 2009, my husband, Luke, deployed to Afghanistan. And while he was there, he, in addition to being in several incidents, attacks really, where other people were killed, other soldiers died, he sustained what we later learned was a traumatic brain injury. Now, we didn't really know that he was injured, per se, for many years. Because when you're in what the military likes to call a very kinetic environment, that's code for, wow, there was a lot of fighting, and you're not physically, visibly injured, you literally soldier on. Other people have died. Other people are very seriously injured and being evacuated, and it is your job to keep going. And so that is precisely what he did. He kept going. He kept going there. He kept going when he came home. He kept going when he was trying to um, recover and move to a different unit. He just kept going. And despite all of their best efforts to just keep going, Luke and Amy were unable to escape the impact of deep, invisible wounds, and their lives began to take a turn. But as we all know, when we're trying to take care of our own selves, keeping going isn't a recipe for understanding what's going on with you. It's a recipe for burying that. And so many years on from those initial injuries, our lives really started to unravel with interpersonal conflicts and marriage challenges and just all of the things that are symptoms of a bigger unaddressed problem. 
And eventually he was diagnosed with this traumatic brain injury with related post-traumatic stress. I had this moment that was very serious and was also a little bit of an out-of-body experience where I realized that things were not okay. And he had really been trying to band-aid and hide his problems for quite a long time. And it was a revelation of some stuff he had been hiding. It was him like literally sitting on the floor crying and telling me he didn't know why he was still here. And by here, we mean on this earth. It was a moment of absolute despair in within me, but also a moment of absolute clarity that I knew that there were steps to take and we were gonna figure them out together. I have to pause here to highlight the relationship between this moment of absolute despair and the absolute clarity that followed it. Advocates are formed in this moment when it seems like hope is failing, confronted with suffocating darkness where it seems like there is no way forward. Advocates find the instinct that says, I do not accept this. There has to be another way. I will build my own. That's exactly what Amy did. Together, Amy and Luke began taking steps, acknowledging the struggle, reaching out for help, finding resources, and beginning to heal. And as they navigated the ups and downs of recovery, Amy explained what advocacy looked like on a personal level so that they could sustain their marriage. I stood back and thought, okay, like like all of these things are for reasons you get married, but also in that decision when I married him, it was a faith decision that I knew that this is what I was supposed to be doing. From a personal health standpoint, we have things that we're supposed to do. Those things can change. Like this isn't like a permanent thing. And also I feel that we are called as humans to take care of ourselves. So boundaries are a faith decision too. And all of these things come into play. And so when I stood back, I said, okay, what about this situation violates my boundaries? What boundaries should I have? What can I handle? What am I being given the grace to handle? What am I being called to do right now? And so with all of those things in the fabric of how I was looking at it, and those are individual decisions, by the way. So I don't want somebody to hear this and think, oh, yeah, like I was called to marry this person to start with. So now I got to stick it out because even though he's doing all of these things or whatever, abusive Mm -hmm. or like and like or even not physically abusive, emotionally abusive or just doing things that aren't okay with me. I don't want someone to hear that. So this is like a fabric of decisions for me. And how I came out of that was, okay, like here are my boundaries. As long as you understand that you have to respect these going forward and you know what's okay with me because I've now communicated that, that's something that we can work with and we can work on it together. Amy reevaluated their situation, taking into account her own boundaries and what she could handle. Their journey towards healing involved open communication and seeking help. 
And so long-term, that looked like he started communicating what he needed. He started getting testing for his medical problems to understand what kind of injuries he actually had. He started going to appointments. He started seeing a therapist. And ultimately, we made the decision to get out of the active duty army because mm-hmm. we realized through this process that he was not going to have the bandwidth to get the help he not only needed but deserved as a military member. So someone who served in the military and was injured in the work deserves to be cared for. And that's something I need people to hear because so many of our military members and and our public servants think that this is just part of the deal and that since they're not as hurt as somebody else, they don't deserve to be cared for. That's not true. So he deserved to be cared for. We needed to get out of the active military and pursue that. It stands out to me that this advocacy that Amy and Luke began practicing with each other, prioritizing their needs and their wellness, communicating more, led them to realizing that their family deserved more than the system was able to provide. Like Amy said, even the culture surrounding injury and trauma in the military made it harder to get the help that was so badly needed and unquestionably deserved. As a fully empowered advocate, Amy forged ahead. So, how'd that look? Well, we moved to Alaska. We lived in Tennessee at the time. We moved here sight unseen because we wanted to spend more time in conjunction with nature, which is something we had seen helping him during our sort of journey in Tennessee. When we went camping, it was like watching somebody unpack a backpack. By the time that tent was set up, he was (sighs) different guy. And so, we knew we needed to spend more time doing that. We changed our lives. We moved up here. We moved our kids up here. They were four and seven at the time. So young guys who had moved several times already with the military, by the way. So it wasn't the the first time. Um, And then for me, once we got up here, I started helping myself by purposefully spending time outside. I spend at least 20 minutes outside every single day as a part of that, and I've been doing that for almost 2,500 days in a row. Wow. So it's like a streak kind of thing, right? And I have a podcast, Humans Outside, that actually talks about that now because it's something I'm so passionate about. But it is a major part of my self-care, just 20 minutes. Uh, Often it's more. It's so much more. And it's become a lifestyle. But on the hardest winter day, when things are mighty frosty, it's most certainly 20 minutes. So. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> One part of Amy's story that I want to emphasize is something she's going to share here about community. And I know sometimes a conversation about self-advocacy can start to feel like we're saying, oh, here's one more thing you need to do. You got to do it all yourself. It's all on you. It's almost baked into that name, right? Like self-advocacy. And it's misleading. So Amy points out what I feel as well. Self-advocacy hinges on finding other people and letting them in. Other people who have specific knowledge. I want to add, too, that this was certainly not done in a vacuum of just me deciding these things, sitting on my bed. Yeah. Right? Like, this is really leaning on a community, leaning on resources. I see a therapist every couple of weeks still to this day, a lovely faith-based woman who helps me sort through whatever I've got going on. Um, There were pastors at our church who really helped me understand what my choices were 
from a moral perspective, Mm -hmm. from a boundaries perspective in that crisis moment. They also came alongside him and helped him understand what his choices in reality were about to be if he didn't figure it out and and admit that he needed help and then pursue that. Um, These were, you know, men who knew him and who were willing to take their own time to walk beside him. And really, they saved his life because of that. Um, And I I don't want to ever pretend we did this by ourselves because that most certainly did not happen. Um, You know, and it's a faith community that we have here where we are that keeps us grounded today. So these are all things. And then it's also talking about it like this right right now where we are. Um, hearing other people's stories, sharing my story, talking to you. All of these things are part of the fabric. Amy's story demonstrates so well that even in the situations where a caregiver may be the only person with the perfect knowledge of their loved one's needs or the only person aware of the critical, even life-saving decisions that have to be made, those choices don't have to be made in isolation. Self-advocacy includes leaning on community and outside resources. In fact, our next episode coming up is all about community. But when the problems feel too big to handle, despite our best efforts in those moments, Amy has this advice. So this is going to sound a little crazy, all right? But for anyone who's ever had a toddler has probably watched the television show Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, okay? Now, if you're I not familiar the, with the Clubhouse. theme song for you, but yes. I, I would I, encourage you not to sing yes, this I will song. Not. <laughs> <laughs> Nor will I. But in the Clubhouse, they have a delightful time and inevitably encounter some sort of problem that they need help with, okay? And part of the shtick of the program is Mickey Mouse and his Mickey Mouse voice says, well, we should look in our mouse tools for something that can help us. And so uh, descending from the sky or materializing in the corner becomes this basket or box of quote-unquote mouse tools. Well, what is a mouse tool? Well, it is a variety of perhaps helpful objects. And it is, it's always something simple, like if we had a nail, we should get a hammer. It's in our mouse tools. Let's use that. Okay. So I have a mental practice where when I encounter a problem that's a real pickle, I step back and say, okay, what's in my mouse tools that could help us? And it is inevitably something very simple. Oh, I should leave five minutes earlier for this thing. (laughs) What if we had a basket where we put everybody's gloves and mittens and then they would just buy the door? What if we made dinner on Monday and reheated it on Tuesday? It's not complicated. It's just using the tools I already have. But that moment is this practice of taking a step back and saying, what do I have in my tools that can help me? And then acknowledging while I do that, that it is a probably a very simple solution and I don't need to um, move to Tahiti or like, right. and like buy a new whatever, get a bigger garage. Like I don't need to do something complicated. I just need to, maybe it's ask for help. Maybe it's use the tool I already have. Maybe it's take a beat and just say, okay, like, how can I change my schedule just the tiniest bit to make this make more sense? What can I drop from my schedule that we really don't need to be doing? On and on and on. It's taking a step back and keeping it simple and using your mouse tools. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> using your mouse tools. Love it. Now let's go back to Lauren Lowry, who when we left her was quickly becoming the only expert on Accardi-Goudier syndrome in rural Oklahoma for her son, Leo. Being an advocate, it was not something that came easy to me. 
It was not something that I naturally knew how to do or was ever easy. Those first few years of Leo's life were definitely the hardest of my life. It was scary. Faced with constant reminders that the system wasn't prepared to help Leo, Lauren felt the extreme pressure of having to fill in the gaps. And it really does something to you. It really shakes you to your core. And it sent me into a very dark place. It sent me into a place where I was just constantly putting all of that on myself. I started just staying up late every single night, just 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., researching, trying to find answers just on Google. I almost had this idea at the time, like, I have to figure out a way to save my child, which is just not a healthy way to do it. It really ended up adding to my already really exhausted mom self. (laughs) You know, I was a new mom. We're already exhausted at that point. It became obsessive. I was avoiding a lot of things in my life because I didn't want to deal with those negative feelings. I didn't want to face the grief. I didn't want to face the sadness I felt or the fear, the fear of the future that I felt. Mm. So instead of facing that, I almost used researching as like a way to, no, I can, I can go over here. I don't have to feel that. I can just focus on this instead. And in a pattern that feels so familiar, looking for answers, looking for information as a coping mechanism, Lauren's health began to fail. I was not taking care of myself. Mm. I was putting my needs completely on the back burner, if even on the stove at all. Right? <laughs> and sure. so my brain, my brain was in fight, flight, or freeze mode all the time. I mean, I was so impatient. I got frustrated and just very very agitated. I lashed out a lot at my husband for just little things. I was not the nicest person at work. I just kind of wanted to check out whenever I got home. I just wanted to lay on the couch and do nothing. And it was causing a lot of issues. And if you were with us for episode five in this series, you may be recognizing by now the signs of caregiver burnout. Whenever I first kind of realized what was going on, this bigger problem, that, okay, yes, this is what's happening in my life. This is the pattern I'm going through. I really just first started noticing what was going on in my head. What were my thoughts? What were my feelings? I mean, it's very basic. It sounds very simple, but it's not always easy to do. It is not always easy to say, I'm feeling this. I'm feeling this. Lauren began acknowledging and naming her unmet needs, which, as we know, is the first step to breaking the cycle of burnout. As she did this, she realized she needed to renegotiate her relationship with research. Years later, she's got it down to a science. I don't Google at 2 a.m. anymore. (laughs) That's for sure. I have a very strong rule that I do not research anything after the hours of 5 p.m., you know, because that's just not going to, you're already depleted. You're at the end of the day. You don't have enough emotional energy left for that. (laughs) But now whenever I am seeking answers or I'm looking for something, it's not from a sense of trying to fix him. So really, the need for research is very different. It's coming from a place of just love, 
of just wanting to help him maybe, you know, maybe help him achieve a certain goal or something along those lines, rather than I need to fix my child in order for me to feel better. Hmm. In order for me to not feel this way, I need to find a way for him to not have that diagnosis. So it's very different where it's coming from. You know, does that mean I want him to have that diagnosis? Absolutely not. But the way that I approach it, that is, that is huge. So now whenever I research, I, I know I have doctors, actually. We go to Philadelphia, to the Children's Hospital Philadelphia, to CHOP uh, multiple times a year. <laughs> and there are specialists there that are very familiar with AGS. And they're very familiar with Leo, and they do a lot of research on this. And if I'm looking for answers... I go directly to them. Oh. I don't look on Google because Google is very outdated information or it's things that they've written. So that is a very helpful resource wow. is to find somebody, yes, find somebody that actually really knows what's going on and is accurate information. Yeah. Relying on the experts for information like Lauren does means not always having an immediate answer for the question that wakes you up at 2 a.m. However, as Lauren mentioned, it also provides a layer of protection because information at your fingertips is rarely the most accurate or trustworthy. With a little discipline, Lauren found people with real knowledge to turn to instead of the internet. And I just have to add here that this is a good idea anyway. You are not at your best in the middle of the night, especially when you wake up in a panic gasp. That's not the best time to rationally solve any problem. I mean, your brain in the middle of the night thinks that it's equipped to answer any question. And I'm here to tell you, it is not. Instead, find a research mentor. Ask real experts to help you know where to look for information. Even doctors who don't have time to specialize in what you need are often enthusiastic about pointing you in the right direction so that you can educate yourself and be more empowered that way. But I digress. Okay, there's another tool Lauren shared with me that I want you to have. And this one is about approaching those difficult interactions with the systems for times when you feel angry, impassioned, frustrated, that mama bear fury for someone who's not getting what they need. Those are hard conversations. And Lauren has some advice for how to regulate emotions and energy for the best possible outcomes. I have learned that... Whenever, especially advocating, how you show up to the conversation matters. It does impact the outcome. What I mean is literally the thoughts you are thinking. So our thoughts create our feelings. Our feelings drive our actions. So whenever you have a thought that you need to go into a situation, just mama bear on the defense, on the attack, and you are angry, you're feeling very defensive and like up in arms, you're going to show up with an energy that can put the other person on the defense. Mm. When someone's on the defense, on the other side of you, they're not as willing to help you. Now, am I saying that it should be that way? No, they should do what's best for the child. But that's not the case a lot of times, unfortunately. <laughs> so I have really learned that how we show up when we are advocating if we show up from a place of love, so if you think thoughts in your head that create feelings of love for yourself, you're going to show up more open and a more, how can we collaborate to help my child? 
teamwork. And when the other person on the other side, whoever that is, if it's you know the school district, if that's doctors, whoever, whenever you show up in that space and say, how can we help this child that we love? They are going to say, yes, let's do it. They are going to be on your team, not on the defense. Am I going to say you're always going to get what you want? No, but it, it goes back to the old saying, you know, you catch more flies with honey. And does that mean you sit there and you be sick sweet and you, you know, just say, oh, whatever. And you're just la-di-da. No, it just means that whenever you come up to the conversation, when you show up in an open way and you have to be very intentional about it, you know? And so something I do anytime that I have to go into a conversation where I need to fight for my child to receive a certain service, I will do a little journaling. I will write down how I am actually feeling. I will get all those mama bear thoughts out. I will write them out. And then I will kind of sit with them for a minute. And it doesn't mean, you know, I won't feel that way. But I will find a middle ground. I'll say, okay, that can all be true. All of those thoughts I just wrote out, those can all be true. But also, this can be true too. That I love my child and I want to do what is best for them. And so do they. And just showing up from, and you know, and I will find, I will pick very intentional thoughts to think, and I will kind of, almost like a mantra to myself as I'm going into that conversation. And it just helps relax my body. It helps bring me out of that like tense, angry, here I am. Fight or flight. <laughs> it just relaxes me. And it, I guess it helps me think more clearly. It helps me access the problem solving and the critical thinking functions of my prefrontal cortex because I'm not living in my downstairs brain. And that is something that I've had to use many times. I think there's so much wisdom in Lauren's practice of journaling before the tough conversations, finding an outlet for the flurry of emotions, picking the intentional thoughts that she's going to take with her into the room, and giving herself more power to be who she wants to be in those extremely stressful situations. One thing that feels like a theme in the self-advocate journey is education. There's so much to learn about medical conditions, about the system, and how to make up the difference where it fails, and about personal boundaries with an infinite workload. I promised earlier that we were going to come back to Jillian Benfield for the way she's retrained her brain. And this is the part of self-education that I hope we can all take away, if nothing else how to find your hope and mindset that will empower you as an advocate. This unlearning and relearning inspires me because whether it's about the expectations you have for how your life will look, or like Jillian is saying, the expectations society has for your overcoming journey, this is what triumph looks like as a caregiver, or even the expectations that come from the system, the this is your prognosis, these are your treatment options, this is what you're going to do and what the limits are, we're going to end up with some beliefs that don't serve us. 
We should resist society's temptation, not temptation, but insistence. There's an insistence of overcoming our unexpected circumstances, right? And if you Google image the word overcoming, uh, you're going to find somebody standing atop a mountain with their arms <laughs> stretched overhead in a stance that screams victory. Yes, that's exactly right. That's yeah. what you're going to find. Um, and that's really what society wants of us. They want us to... Um, rush to the other side of pain as quickly as possible and return to our lives the way that they were as quickly as possible and pretend like the, the sadness is, is gone or, or the hard parts are gone. Um, what I say in the book is that we're really supposed to undergo. And undergo, if you Google image that, it's a picture of somebody about to undergo surgery. And that's really what it's like. It's admitting you need help. Um, confronting the pain and digging into those deep, dark spaces, um, and then pursuing healing on the other side. And so undergoing for me looked like educating myself. Um, it looked like deconstructing some of the bad theology that I had. Um, it looked like deconstructing some of the bad ideas I had about success, worth, and independence. Um, and it, and then replacing those ideas with better ones. And so really it was a lot of reading, um, a lot of attending classes. Um, it was a lot of quiet reflection, which for me and my personality was not something that came naturally to me. And um, yeah, it was, it was unlearning and then relearning. That was the process of undergoing. And because of that process and because of the unexpected through my son, um, I'm not who I used to be, and I thank God for that. I'm so grateful for other caregivers, for their stories, because at face value, when I look at a journey like Amy's or Jillian's, it's easy for me to think, well, they had their tools in their toolbox when life came at them. They were ready. They're so great. And I so appreciate hearing the entire story that even before they were able to advocate, they had to unlearn the mindset that was handed to them. Before finding option C, they had to unlearn options A and B or whatever system told them about what their limits were. This is an act of faith, reaching for the door you can't see and trusting that little instinct which says, there has to be something more for us. It's stepping out into the darkness and when no acceptable path appears, forging your own. For all the caregivers whose stories we've heard in this episode, Lauren, Jillian, and Amy, caregiving looks different. The obstacles are nuanced, and the need to advocate is as individual as the person receiving care. But what they all have in common is at some point, at many points, they confronted a failing system. They felt the claustrophobic pressure of not having help, resources, or information available, and the despair which comes with that by default. Maybe you noticed, like I did, that none of these women sound like a victim. With everything they've been through, who could blame them if they did? Their circumstances have been extreme. But instead of remaining in that space, each one of them said, I do not accept this, and empowered themselves. They didn't do it alone. We're diving right into that in the next episode. But they had the faith. If you were at a point in your caregiving journey— where you are overwhelmed by the closed doors, by the form emails, by the indifference of your insurance, whatever your struggle with the system looks like for you, I hope you can feel that you're not alone in that. We have been there. 
you don't have to accept the despair that's been handed to you. You're going to feel that fire, the rage. You're going to journal about it. And you're going to build a way forward, system or not. You're more powerful than you think. You are an advocate. The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio. It's hosted by Lisa Valentine-Clark and produced by Becca Hurley and McKay Menden with help from Avery Stonely and Blake Morris. Music and post-production by Josh Fouts. Lauren Lowry is a life coach and hosts the podcast Overcome the Overwhelm. Check out her Instagram for more of her story. Jillian Benfield is a journalist, former news anchor, and author. You can check out her book, The Gift of the Unexpected, and more at her website, jillianbenfield.com. Amy Luchatz is a writer and director of development for Remedy Alpine, serving veterans. She is also the host of the Humans Outside podcast, as well as the owner and voice behind the Humans Outside blog. You can find out more about her and her projects at her website, amybuchatz.com. Links to all of our guests, their websites, books, podcasts, and Instagrams will be up on our website on the episode page, so you can check them out and follow their work. To connect with us about this episode, please join our listener community on Facebook. We'll be hosting additional conversations there with more opportunities to share and find resources. 